This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. We're entering a new era now. We have new COVID strategies. There's some new unknowns, and we've got a vaccine. Hello, and welcome to Coronapod. Joining me this week is senior reporter Heidi Ledford. Heidi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It seems like on Coronapod, the only thing I have been talking about for, I don't know, what, 55 years now is vaccines. But this week, we are going to talk about something slightly different, albeit not very different, and that is antiviral medication. And that's because there's been quite a lot of development in recent weeks. Heidi, catch us up. Yeah, it's a development that we've been waiting on really for since the beginning of the pandemic, almost two years now. And then all of a sudden, pop, like, you know, two of these antiviral drugs report results just within a few weeks of each other. And judging from the press releases, we've got two great new options for treating early COVID. Now, unfortunately, as has often been the case, because we have fast moving data in a fast moving pandemic, um, all we have at the moment is the press release. And there's not a ton of information in there that really allows us to say how well these are going to work in the real world as opposed to in a clinical trial. But, um, you know, as far as press releases go, it's great. Yeah, okay. So these are from two pharmaceutical companies. Tell us, what are the names? This is going to be a challenge here because this is pronounced the names of the medications. And what's the kind of top lines that we're getting from these these press releases? Yeah. So Merck has made a drug called Molnupiravir. I don't have an easier name to give you for that one. We could just call it the Merck drug. But Molnupiravir, that one, according to the press release, cut hospitalizations by about half when people were given the treatment very early in their infection. And this is the key to antivirals is that they really need to be given early. The other drug drug made by Pfizer, which is now a household name for its vaccine, is called Paxlovid. It's a little bit easier than Molnupiravir. It's the brand name. Paxlovid cut hospitalizations by 89%, which sounds more impressive than the Merck drug, but we can't necessarily compare the numbers you know, directly head to head at this point. But it does sound quite impressive. And that, again, was when given early in the disease course. Now, there's a lot to unpack here, and we are going to gradually unpack it, including the sort of caveat you gave right at the beginning about these numbers don't necessarily reflect how things work in the real world. But to start off with, how are these drugs working? They're antivirals. They're there to attack the virus itself. They work in a very different way from the vaccine, of course. What's the kind of mechanism behind these antiviral drugs? Yeah, they're really interesting. They both work um, in very different ways. So molnupiravir works by essentially introducing mutations into the viral genome. So coronavirus has an RNA genome. 
Molnupiravir tricks the enzyme that helps to replicate that genome into thinking that it's one of the RNA sort of letters that comprises the genome. And a metabolite of Molnupiravir gets incorporated into the genome, causes a bunch of mutations. Eventually, the virus just can't function anymore. And that's that. Then the immune system can clear it out and you're done. Paxlovid works a, a bit differently. It inhibits a kind of protein called a protease, which is involved in sort of processing viral proteins. And we have some experience with protease inhibitors in other diseases, other viral diseases like HIV, uh, hepatitis C, both. So virologists are quite excited about that one because that's a mode of action they're more familiar with. Molnupiravir is a bit different. It's, it's, we've never had an antiviral that works precisely this way. We've had some that are a bit similar, but not one that works precisely this way. And the mechanisms of action, they also come with their own potential side effects or risks or problems. The first one, which I think I'm going to hit on the head straight away because it could sound very scary, is anything that introduces mutations to a genome could be seen by people that are just sort of seeing on the faces it as being pretty scary. Make me feel less scared about that. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't have a really certain answer on that one, I think, yet. I mean, what I can say is that based on the clinical trial data, they didn't see any immediate safety concerns from, you know, the data that they have, which is quite short term. I'm, Merck, I'm sure, has done lots of animal studies as well. Um, and also, Molnupiravir is really designed to work with this enzyme that replicates RNA genomes, and the human genome is DNA. So that's, it's a different situation. But there have been some work that suggests that when you grow cells in culture in a laboratory and you expose them to molnupiravir, human cells, that you can get mutations in human cells after exposure to molnupiravir. It's not clear if that would happen you know, when it's administered in the body. It's not clear to what extent that would happen you know, and, and what that might be comparable to. I mean, you only take molnupiravir for five days. I mean, if it does cause mutations, is it better, worse, or the same as going to the Bahamas and sunbathing for five days, you know, and, and exposing yourself to UV light or something like that. So we don't really have a sense of that, but we can say there are no immediate safety concerns that come out. I could imagine, and some people have told me they would expect that regulators might be hesitant about approving this for pregnant women, though, just to be, just to be safe about that. Absolutely. Certainly one mutation early in a pregnancy could be much more significant than one mutation in an adult cell, for example. As you say, UV mutates cells. It, this isn't completely and utterly terrifying as it might sound. But yeah, again, caution is important. Right. And then the other drug, Paxlovid, this is a slightly different mode of action. And the concerns there, if you're going to think about side effects, seem to be more focused around drug-drug interactions. Tell me what, what, what are the reasons for that? Yeah, so Paxlovid is actually going to be a kind of combination of two different treatments. There's the antiviral that Pfizer developed, and then there's another drug called ritonavir that would be given with it. And ritonavir is a component in some HIV drug therapies, for example. Um, what it does is it acts on your liver to keep your liver from breaking down the antiviral before it has a chance to work. The ritonavir is basically there to enable the antiviral to do its thing rather than being immediately broken down by the body. The problem is that ritonavir can also interfere with the metabolism of a whole list of other medications. I mean, it really is a mile long. It's heart drugs, it's um, psychiatric therapies, it's immunosuppressants, it's erectile dysfunction drugs. I mean, it's just an enormous list. So you could imagine if everyone who's on those drugs was told, oh, you can't take Paxlovid, that's going to exclude a lot of people who may need an antiviral against COVID. But because it's only a five-day treatment, 
it might be that you could tolerate. Maybe your body can tolerate a little bit of a, an adverse, you know, drug-drug interaction for just a few days. Maybe you can modulate your other medication for just those five days. You know, something along those lines. It may, it's something that physicians, I think, are going to have to play with a bit. And I think while we talk about these potential side effects, we need to put this in the context of, you know, drugs have side effects. This is a thing that we expect. And we have spent such a long time talking about vaccines and side effects. And the bar is a bit different when we talk about vaccines. And the reason is you give vaccines to healthy people. We're talking about giving these drugs to people that already have COVID. Yeah, but there will be interest in studying these drugs as well for prophylaxis. So if you've been exposed to someone who has COVID, for example, and you want to guard against an infection, it may be that eventually these drugs would be considered for treatment there to keep you from getting the infection. Um, so you could imagine that their use would expand out a bit, but not on the scale of vaccines, no. <laughs> vaccines, they have to meet a very high bar of safety. When we think about this kind of uh, prophylaxis potential use and also thinking about how these drugs might be used in combination with vaccines, it really does open up some exciting possibilities. So you could, for example, imagine that these drugs could be used in places where there isn't very high vaccine density or places where there might be an outbreak of a new variant, perhaps. Maybe this is a, a good way to help really quash that before it gets any further. Um, and these are the kinds of things that get public health experts quite excited. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, no, they are very excited about this. I mean, we need to learn more about the antivirals. So we'll need to learn, you know, how do they impact transmission? How do they, you know, are they useful in a prophylactic setting like that? But yeah, that is the hope is that you could combine the two essentially and, and uh, use that to help quash outbreaks um, as they spring up before they become huge. And then also, particularly for people who don't either don't have access to vaccines or who don't respond well to vaccines, this could be a really critical sort of way to fill that gap. Now, one of the biggest issues that we are now facing in the pandemic is access to vaccines. And we have seen massive, massive vaccine inequality around the world. How might these drugs be different? Because it is possible that countries could have easier access to these drugs than they're having access to vaccines as it stands. And that's in part because of things we've talked about in Coronapod before, the, the UN's patent pool, for example. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, molnupiravir has been put in. Paxlovid, Pfizer's drug, from, I've been told they're in discussions with the patent pool. Um, and this is a system to share the intellectual property so that it would allow generics manufacturers around the world to start making these drugs faster and cheaper than would normally be possible, um, particularly for lower and middle income countries. So Merck has already made that commitment. And my understanding is that some generics companies are already working on making molnupiravir. For Paxlovid, Pfizer doesn't have the greatest track record when it comes to the, its vaccines, right, in terms of global access. Uh, so, so people are a little bit hesitant. But, you know, my understanding is that they have already begun discussions with the patent pool uh, that Merck signed on to. And that yeah, I don't know the content of those discussions, but I have been told the fact that they're even doing that is a good sign because it's actually fairly early in the process, you know, normally companies might not think about that until after they've gotten some sort of regulatory approval, but the fact that they've already sort of engaged in those discussions is a good sign. There's some other reasons to be a bit hopeful. I mean, these are smaller molecules. These are hopefully easier to make than a vaccine would be. So this idea of sort of sharing the intellectual property makes more sense to, to more people, I guess, that, you know, you would have lots of companies around the world who could make this. There's the potential that they could be fairly cheap. They could be easy to transport and to administer. Key to these drugs really is that you can take them as a pill instead of having to go to a hospital and be infused, which was the options that we were faced with prior to this. 
But I can say that I've spoken to a few people in parts of the world that have not been able to access vaccines very readily. And they look at, you know, these news reports that keep coming out about the U.S. buying however many doses of molnupiravir, the U.K. buying however many millions of doses of molnupiravir and so on. And they worry that they're seeing the same thing happening all over again, that, you know, the wealthier countries are going to snatch up the, the supply and uh, that there won't be enough to go to the regions that really need it because they also don't have access to the vaccine. So it's, I'd like to be hopeful. I, I do feel a little bit worried. Now, the press releases that have come out so far, as we've said, these are press releases. We've seen this as well with vaccines. The press releases come out. We then have to kind of wait to see the data to interrogate that, but also to hope that it plays out in the real world. And one really big question that scientists have is the data that's come out so far is all about the effectiveness of these drugs at reducing hospitalizations, but people want to know whether or not they also reduce death. And that's one of the big questions that scientists are going to be looking out for when more data starts to be released. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there's there's some glimmers of hope in the press releases in that no one who received either one of these antivirals died from COVID. Uh, but it's just that the numbers in, enrolled in the trial were too small for us to really say, wow, it really protects against death. So I think, you know, in the placebo groups, you had maybe eight in one of the trials, maybe 10 die in the other one. So the, the numbers were just quite small. But yeah, there is reason to hope and it will be something that we'll be looking for yeah, from the real world data. And the UK has approved molnupiravir now, much like it did, you know, as one of the very, very first uh, countries to approve a vaccine as well, you know, really, really wants to get these things approved. Are we going to see other regulatory agencies around the world approving this quickly as well? What, 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 you know, how quickly do you think this is going to get approved in other places? Uh, the, I guess the one that I pay the most attention to is probably the United States, um, because that's where I'm from. And I used to cover the FDA um, for a few years when I lived there. And uh, the FDA is going to have an advisory committee meeting at the end of November, and they will then discuss the data and uh, very likely issue a decision, I would imagine, quite soon after that. That's for molnupiravir. Uh, for Paxlovid, you know, that data just came out last Friday, and, you know, I don't know that they've even submitted to regulators yet. I'm not sure what the status of that is. But for molnupiravir in the United States, we likely will hear something, you know, around the beginning of December is my guess. I mean, I want to be really excited about this because, you know, it's always great to have more possible, you know, strings to the bow to fight the pandemic because we know we need them. And the the possibility, even though, you know, maybe perhaps it's a little bit of a an optimistic hope that this might also be a drug that is more accessible to people in low and middle income countries is something that I kind of want to hold on to for my for my sanity. But before we get too happy and excited, there is one other potential concern, which I think has been discussed by scientists, and that's about resistance. So drug resistance is very well understood. It's a thing that people are very aware of. Are we going to have the coronavirus quickly becoming resistant to these antiviral drugs as well? I mean, it does seem like it's a possibility. It's ideally what you would want to do is move as quickly as you can to combination treatments. And to my knowledge at the moment, these drugs have not been tested in combination with each other or with other antiviral drugs. You know, that's where you want to head because it's harder for the virus to become resistant to two drugs given at the same time than it is for it to become resistant to just the one. I keep saying, you know, oh, there's reason for hope here and there's reason for worry there. But in this case, there's reason for hope with molnupiravir in the sense that virologists think it's going to be a difficult one for coronavirus to become immune to just because of the way it sort of incorporates into the replicating RNA genome and so forth. It's just going to be hard for the enzyme that does that to work in a way that 
doesn't allow for the drug to be incorporated. So there, hopefully, resistance might take a while on that one at least. With the protease inhibitor, people talk about resistance a lot, but one thing that someone pointed out to me is that we're always thinking about this in terms of HIV therapies. And with HIV therapies, people will take those drugs for years and decades. And plus, by the time they've started taking those drugs, they have so many different strains of HIV just within one person that it's, it's very easy you know, for resistance to emerge in that setting. With COVID, you'll be treating for five days. It's a shorter treatment. So maybe resistance is less likely to come up. But you know, the counter to that is the scale. I mean, just so many people in the middle of a pandemic being treated with these drugs potentially just the number of chances for resistance to arise, it just seems like it, if it's possible, it likely will. Yeah. And one other concern, which, you know, I read in your story and didn't really occur to me until I read it. And then I thought, huh, is again with molnupiravir, this, this drug that incorporates mutations into the genome of the virus, there is a concern that what if those mutations inadvertently create a variant, you know, because that's what's happening. That's how variants are arising. But my understanding is the researchers aren't particularly worried about that at this stage. It's it's another one of those theoretical possibilities that they'll have to watch very closely to see. I think, you know, one person made a comparison to me. This was John Mellers, who's an infectious disease guy at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And he was saying, you could imagine taking a spike and ramming it through the keyboard of your computer. And this is like creating a mutation in the viral genome. And how many times can you ram that spike through the keyboard before you've ruined the motherboard and bye-bye computer, right? Like the more times you make a mutation in the viral genome, the less likely it is that that virus is going to be fit and able to even function, much less to create a super virus that's able to infect more people and escape immunity and so on. He found it relatively unlikely, but I guess another point to make about that is also that the drug does seem to make a lot of mutations in a viral genome at a time. It's not just, you know, sort of a bit here, a bit there. And when you saturate a viral genome with lots of mutations, it, it is just most likely that it's going to cease to function as opposed to become a super virus. And in a way, this sort of interaction with variants is one of the other benefits of these antiviral drugs when we compare them to vaccines. We've talked a lot about vaccines protection waning as we see more variants arriving because, you know, the vaccines were created with the very initial strain of coronavirus and then variants can potentially make them less effective. But these antiviral drugs don't work in the same way. And so as far as we can see, they seem there's no reason they shouldn't be as effective on variants. Yeah, so far it looks good. I mean, there have been some uh, studies with molnupiravir against different variants, I think mostly in the laboratory. Um, but uh, yeah, those look promising. And it's the targets that these drugs are targeting, the proteins that these drugs are targeting, are not really where we see most of the variation arising. Um, because most of the variation that we're seeing right now or that we're focused on in any case, it has to do with um, interactions between the virus and the immune system. And these drugs work elsewhere. It's odd that we've got to a place now where I feel refreshed to talk about a therapeutic that doesn't work on Spike. It's I, I can't really imagine that, <laughs> that that's something I would care about two years ago. But I'm like, oh, interesting. It doesn't use Spike. Huh. But now I care about we've all <laughs> We've all become virology nerds, right? <laughs> I know. Anyway... Well, I think we should draw this to a close. And I'm going to leave this on what a tentative, hopeful note, because it's always good to have a little bit of hope at this at this point as the world starts to get a bit colder. Um, Heidi, I'm sure I'm going to talk to you again soon. Hopefully not to say, oh, it looks like they don't work. <laughs> but for now, thank you so much and have a good rest of your day. Oh, you too, Noah. Thanks so much. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.